Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, solutions expert and strategic advisor with NRC Health. And it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. Welcome back to another episode of the Patient No Longer podcast. We've got a great guest today, a new friend that I recently met at the Governance Institute. We have got Ken Hughes with us, who is a social sciences Frankenstein. He is fascinated by human behavior. Ken is joining us from Dublin, Ireland. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very, very welcome. It's great to be here, Ryan, and great to be invited. I love your bio and I love the social sciences Frankenstein. I got the opportunity to see you speak, but our listeners have not had that opportunity yet. So tell us a little bit more about your fascination with human behavior and maybe how that came to be. Yeah. I mean, I've always been fascinated by psychology, you know, so the human mind and how the human mind works. And then I got into a bit of neuromarketing in my career. I was using neuroscience and psychology with big brands all over the world to help them sell more. I was an evil genius. And then I started becoming really fascinated during our digital transformation journey in the last 10 or 15 years in society with cyber behavioralism, that field of study that looks at how our digital interactions affect our real world expectations of business and brands and customer journeys and industry interactions. And so really today, that social science Frankenstein description is kind of me saying, look, there's a few things you all have to stitch together here to understand consumer behavior, no matter what industry you are. So if you want to optimize your healthcare product and service, you have to understand how people are living their lives socially. So the sociology of it. You have to look at the anthropology of it in terms of our expectations and how we're living together as tribes, digital tribes and real world. We have to look at the way digital has taken over as a digital first world that we live in. And so, yeah, it's that blend of psychology, sociology, anthropology, cyber behaviorism. I'm just fascinated with that intersection, how humans are living their lives. And of course, the pandemic changing everything, changing the values that we hold dear, accelerating some, wiping away others. And so my field of study is consumer behavior. And so I would talk to an audience like I am to you today about what consumers' expectations now have for our industry. And unless we deliver on those, we fade away into irrelevance. Yeah, I love what you talk about in terms of consumer expectation. You call it the expectant consumer, and you share a few examples of how our expectations have just skyrocketed over the years. One thing we struggle with in healthcare is understanding how other industries shape that and how now that you get irritated if you're waiting five minutes for an Uber, how that affects in healthcare sitting for an hour in a windowless room waiting for your doctor. Can you talk a little bit more about that and know that when we talk about high expectations at NRC Health, a lot of people say, is there any chance they're going to plateau? Is there any chance they're going to go down? I mean, people are hoping for some sort of escape here. But what's your view of what's going to happen with expectations of consumers in the future? They're only going in one direction, I'm afraid. It's a one directional journey. Consumer expectations have been ratcheting every decade for all eternity, I guess, really. Every time we have a new technology or a new way of our channel or a new way to market, our expectations shift. And the one I suppose I use regularly is to remind people, your Uber example is great. You know, so we would have waited for 15 minutes for a cab quite happily at an airport, and now we don't. And the other great one of the audience, I guess, will be of a certain age and will remember walking to their local video store and standing there on a Friday evening, looking at these black tapes, trying to work out what to bring back to the family for movie night. And, you know, it was a really bonkers idea when you think about it. You know, you were 
standing at his counter asking for a movie and the guy was typing it into the keyboard and oh sorry no someone's got that today what and so like it would be like going to netflix today choosing a movie and being told no sorry someone in austin texas is watching that today you know our expectations have just shifted and we were that same generation but now we get angry if netflix buffers for one second and we were the same generation that it took an hour to get into your car drive the thing rewind the tape it was mad so our expectations always shift and we're the same people now map that onto the next generation of people who didn't even ever go to the video store the netflix is all they've ever known and those expectations, you know, ratchet up. And so we can see the expectations shifting per generation so that, you know, the boomers to Gen X to millennial to Gen Z, and now even to Gen Alpha, who are also healthcare consumers, they're under 12. Previously, for instance, you would never have considered a 12-year-old to be a consumer. Their parent maybe was the consumer of the healthcare experience, and they were just a patient. Whereas today, we have 12-year-old consumers with opinions, writing reviews, being very clear as to why they want to buy from certain brands, turning their back on industries. I mean, the financial services industry is a good example of that generation no longer value financial services. All their currency is all via Fortnite or Google Pay. And their new brands, financial services aren't financial brands, they're new brands. And so healthcare is, I would say, in a worrying place in terms of expectations. Consumer satisfaction is an equation. It basically looks at what experience you had versus what expectations you had. And if your expectations are met by your experience, we say that you're satisfied and we can tick the box. And in fact, we measure that in healthcare and we do a lot of surveys and we're delighted when our NPS score, our satisfaction score is 70 or 80. But all you're doing is measuring what they expected to get. What you aren't doing is delighting them and going above their expectations. And that's got to be the starting point now. So we've got to look at every point in the customer journey, as you say, whether it's the windowless office, waiting room, or whether it's the digital customer journey where they're going to start anyway, or whether it's the post-care product. We've got to look at every single piece and think, are we going beyond their expectations? Because unfortunately, if you're not going beyond their expectations, if you're actually meeting them, just meeting them, it's not good enough anymore because that's just expected. And in healthcare, yes, with long waits and with a sometimes very disconnected emotive relationship between patient and provider, there's an area rife for dissatisfaction. And so our bar has to become deliver beyond our customers' expectations at every touch point. And every single one providing the service needs to be thinking that. The way you talk about the high bar is is so true. We did a study years ago using our market insights consumer data, and it was, you know, all these different industries in the US, including financial services, managing my wealth and where I'm traveling, you know, staying at a nice hotel, government services that I'm paying taxes for. And none of them beat out healthcare. Healthcare has the highest expectations over and over and over against all other industries. And so we know that bar is high for healthcare. I love the Netflix example. I and mean, when you shared that in person a while ago, you had people rock and rolling, thinking about their you know, journey to Blockbuster, which I always felt like ended with, we finally picked a movie as a family after you know, 45 minutes and it was rented out, right? It was, it was always what was waiting for you at the end. And now we've got this digital world. In healthcare, a great example of that is how many people have now used telemedicine because they were forced to, because elective surgeries were shut down, physical environments were, you know, don't come here. So we've had these people who've sort of been thrust into these telehealth experiences, oddly enough, more satisfied than not, largely because they had lower expectations. Well, I can't go in to see the doctor, but now if I can get this video piece working, I have a couple of questions, hopefully can answer them. And he did. But what's interesting now is we've got a lot of healthcare leaders saying, we're going to need some of those visits back, right? Now that we're opening back up, it's, you can kind of see the physician who's clawing back some of those physical experiences, because I want to see people in my office. I'm here. You should be here. What kind of effect does that have when an industry that already has high expectations is saying, well, 
we did do telemedicine, but we need you to come in. I use a word called fidgetal. So it's the collision of the physical and the digital. It's a word that's bounced around a lot in corporate strategy at the moment, making your industry fidgetal ready. So this idea that you have to leverage both physical and digital against each other, like an infinity loop, to be able to deliver optimum service for a digital first world. Let me unpack that a little bit. So the digital first world, for instance, is a descriptor where I don't mean that we're talking about the first world. I mean that we do everything digitally first. So that if I want to go out on Friday with my friends to a restaurant, that journey will start today with a WhatsApp conversation between all those friends. So digitally, the digital conversation about, are you free Friday? What time suits? And then people might jump on Yelp or whatever and start looking at restaurants, looking at reviews and reading reviews about where we'll go. And then someone will eventually decide where we're going and we'll book the restaurant digitally. And there'll be an interaction between the restaurant and somebody. And then eventually the physical thing will happen where people will sit down and all eat together. But the journey to get to that place is very digitally driven. And we do that in every aspect of our life. We do that today. We just don't notice it. So every thought you have, every question you have, every curiosity, you reach for your device first. You reach into your pocket first. If you see the statistics on how many times you open your phone a day, it's just horrendous. It'll hurt your brain. And the digital first world became a reality during the pandemic, where we, for the first time in our lives, started to do things digitally that we had never done before. For some people had done their online grocery shopping before, but not the masses. And suddenly the masses were doing that. Some people had used digital to travel before. Instead of going somewhere, they maybe use YouTube channels or virtual reality. And again, the masses, the big one was working from home. Some people had always worked from home, but it was the minority where suddenly you had the entire global village working from home. And for me, as a cyber behaviorist, I think the moment where people were doing their Zoom nights, their poker nights, their dinner parties, their wine book clubs over Zoom, as an anthropologist looking at that, that's a tribal shift. I mean, humans are physical beings. We like to socialize in each other's company. There's a physical comfort in that, whereas that was being all replaced with digital technology for the first time. Most people discovered Zoom as a platform only, you know, look at the share price during the pandemic. And so that was the moment I realized, wow, humans can now pretty much do everything. They can do everything they want to do via a digital interface and they're comfortable with it. Yes, take your point about telemedicine, they were forced into it, but they were comfortable with it. So they quickly adapted to this new reality. Now, this wasn't a new thing, of course. The digital transformation journey had been playing out for the last 10 years. It was accelerating anyway. But there do come step jump events. And the pandemic was a step jump event in the acceleration of a consumer's acceptance of their digital first reality. And so today, any industry that sees digital as a tool, and I do think healthcare is one of those industries. I think a lot of healthcare providers, they see digital as a thing we can do to increase a product or service. They use it inside in their own internal processes. So when you type in digital medicine, for instance, the only Google images you get back are a guy in a white coat or a blue scrubs holding an iPad. It's like, oh, here we are using digital in our everyday. Whereas digital is a philosophy. Digital is an understanding that it's about the customer. It's about where they are, that they will be interacting with us long before they walk into a consulting room or a clinical practice. In fact, so our digital assets, we need to invest in our digital assets significantly more. And so that idea that you just said there, you know, I've been using telemedicine for the last couple of years. I'm more comfortable with that. And yet you've got the doctor maybe or the clinician saying, you know, I'd rather you come into my office. Um, no, sorry, you don't get to decide. Um, the consumer decides at what point in their day or in their geography, they want to have a conversation with you or invite you into that. And if you layer on all you know, the where we're going with tech and, and wearables and AI, and so it, medicine would become everyday digital anyway. And so really the physical presence is only required when I, as a consumer, require it. And so getting that blend of assets right, and I find that most healthcare providers, be it small clinics or large ones, haven't invested in the right technology. They've invested in technology maybe for the sake of 
CRM systems or maybe for actual clinical activities, but not necessarily in, in connecting with the consumer. And by the way, you, you hear me use the word consumer continuously, and I know all the audience listening will be converting that into the word patient in their head, but you need to stop doing that because you know the entomology of the word patient is to help someone with their suffering or to bear suffering. They are certainly not patient. <laughs> if anything, they are quite the opposite of patient today. And so we need to look at them as customers. They are a consumer. They pay our bills. There's a horrendous culture in the healthcare industry and just medicine in general. It comes, I guess, from the psychology of power many, many years ago where I am the, the clinician and the doctor I know, and you will shut up and you will sit there and I will tell you what's wrong with you and I will fix you and you be quiet now. That there's an endemic culture in the system to do with that. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't work anymore. I know every clinician hates Dr. Google. <laughs> every single person walks in, I know what's wrong with me. And that is, must be very frustrating. But we need to lean into that reality where the consumer feels empowered, uh, maybe with knowledge or certainly with entitlement, and they are your equal today. So there used to be kind of an us and them, I think. I'm the clinician, the medic, and you are the patient, and I will treat you. Whereas today, the treatment is something that happens between the two of you. It's a far more balanced scale, and that's very important for us to understand if we're going to be relevant, if we're going to be a brand that they speak about in their peer-to-peer -peer network, if we're going to be a business that they give us a high satisfaction score, it comes from feeling a belonging to our, not like a kind of an end, an inconvenient end point in a customer journey, a tick the box. And I think very much in healthcare, you enter the process even in the physical world, you enter the process, someone sticks a, a band around your wrist, you're instantly given a number and you're just a cog in a machine, faceless, and it's not personal, it's not experiential, it's not customer-centric. And these are all really important things if we're to deliver on relevance as an industry. I want to connect two ideas of, of, of really that great response that you really tied together. And I make sure it's crystal clear for everyone listening, because you talked about digital, the physical and the digital environment sort of merging. But then you also talked about not just seeing people as patients, but also as consumers, which we could not agree with more. And they are not patients. Why we wrote a book called Patient No Longer, right? It is so true. But I think healthcare gets myopic, especially when they view those they serve. They start to look at the single mode. And that was the struggle with telemedicine was, oh my goodness, how do I treat patients through a screen? When all the while, a lot of patients wanted to be treated that way. And even patients are saying, I don't expect to do all of healthcare digitally going forward. That doesn't make any sense. There's things that I'll need to be physically treated for but I want it to be blended together. I want it to be multi-mode. It's the same thing with consumers. I know that when I'm in a gown, I'm a patient, so to speak, but I'm also a consumer and I stay as a consumer when I leave. What I do outside of healthcare affects my next experience in healthcare. Ken, you've got such a great way of thinking about this. Have you found breakthrough ways or just influential ways to get an industry just thinking in one mode, one mode, one single mode? to break out of that? Or is it just competitive pressures? I mean, what causes industries to say, okay, fine, we'll start building this in a way that people can enjoy in multiple modes? Yeah. I mean, sometimes external pressures are the things that crack. So for instance, the great resignation is happening right now. So we've been talking about the employee experience for years. We've been talking about the importance of employee experience and its effect on retention and acquisition. And yet it's taken the great resignation for a lot of people to sit up and think, oh, wow, we need to change our work practices. We need to change how we treat our employees, how we treat our people. Uh, we need to shift the culture of work. And, and so that's only come about because there's been a consequence. And again, the great resignation is driven by so many factors. We can't get into them today now. But so it's, there's been an external pressure that's forced an industry, let's say the HR industry, to reconsider how they work. I think healthcare needs to probably go through that same thing because the culture endemic 
every single person in the layer, if you've been inside healthcare, they have the same opinion of patient, they have the same opinion of the process, very process centered. I mean, so healthcare as an industry is fully process and product centered. It's around what illness you have and what we're going to treat you with. And it's not about the person, it's, it's about the product. Uh, and so every person is sold to treat the product. I think once you understand that it's about putting the customer at the center, not the product at the center, uh, then you start to change the behaviors. How you strip out years and years and years of everyone being in, in the same system is difficult because also healthcare as an industry tends not to attract people outside of healthcare. That's the, again, it's one of the issues of medicine. You study for so long to be a clinician or a medic that you're not going to do something else. And so most people in healthcare have only ever worked in healthcare. And that's a problem because other industries beg and borrow from other facets of life. And very rarely in healthcare, I think, do we get people who have had jobs and roles in other industries. Even C-level management tend to be, get that C-level award because of their years in healthcare. So I think our competitors will come from outside. I think in the future, you could be looking in 10 or 15 years time back at this and thinking, whoa. I mean, the financial services industry in 1997 never expected Google Pay to be one of their biggest competitors. You know, if you were Chase Manhattan or, or whoever, you, you didn't think like, oh, a search engine is going to come along and disrupt our industry. So I think anyone can disrupt anything at all. And so I think our disruptors are likely to be technological players, the Teslas of this world. You know, who knows? They're going to come in and they're going to do it better and they're going to do it from a customer-centric point of view. They're going to do it faster. Uh, they're going to have brands that people trust and know more on an everyday basis. Alexa is trusted more by lots of people than, than their own family. You scary. Know, it is scary. And so we have to get ready for that. And I think it is about customer centricity and about putting the customer at the center as opposed to the white coat, the blue scrub, or the building, or the clinic, or the product, the treatments um, schedule, and really listening to them as humans, obviously, and learning. We've always talked about empathy in medicine, but most people hear about the empathy in medicine, they think about, you know, a nice bedside manner. But what I'm talking about in empathy is actually, what is your suffering? How can we be compassionate? How can we relieve your suffering? And I don't mean that in the medical term, I mean that in the you know, waiting times and post-care and seeing you as a customer. I mean, customer lifetime value is something that we don't really talk about in medicine. We treat them every time they have an issue, but we don't see the bigger picture. And so, you know, I would rather have a relationship with a medical brand that has my back forever and talks to me even when I'm well, as well as when I'm ill and have a long-term relationship, a subscription economy type relationship. You know, we don't have a subscription economy. We again have that at the moment, we have the blockbuster video version, don't we? So you come into the store when you need something. Whereas Netflix realize, well, no matter how many movies you watch, we're charging you every month. And I think medicine, we need to have a customer lifetime angle on that to survive. I think you're so right. And, you know, I think there's been some health organizations that we've worked with who've said, hey, we've got to hire people from outside industries. But just last week, I was having a discussion with our producers and talking about we need a chief marketing officer in healthcare who comes from another industry and they don't grow on trees. So if you're out there listening and you come from outside healthcare, and you've been in healthcare for, let's say, at least six months, we want to talk to you because it's just fascinating to look at people who come from other industries and say, wow, what's going on in healthcare? How do we fix this? One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you're an expert as well on consumer research, brand research, and healthcare struggles in research in the sense that there's this huge mandate to measure the patient experience after the fact. Full admission, NRC Health, delivers a lot of those mail surveys that are mandated by the government. But one of the things that I hear healthcare leaders say is, I need to know about these expectations ahead of time, but it's hard to convince my organization that we really need to be asking surveys beforehand because we have so many surveys that we process after and we love our processes. You've talked about that. So how do you convince people to measure more than just after the fact, which really leaves you with picking up the pieces of an experience? 
versus getting in front of it and saying, you know what, we need to understand our consumers. Do you have ways in which you've influenced people to kind of take a more proactive approach instead of that reactive approach we have in healthcare? Yes, fear. <laughs> fear is the best lever. The after the fact is interesting. I mean, as a consumer, every time you stay in a hotel, without fail, every time you'll get that email the next day, won't you, into your inbox. Right. And 99.99% of us just delete it. No matter how lovely a stay we've had, even if we actually have had a fantastic stay and someone did something above expectations, I don't have the time to be filling out your survey. The expectation, again, of the brand is like, oh, you know, you were with us, so please fill out the survey. No, no, I don't have time. And so a lot of the work that we do in post-measurement is absolute rubbish. People can't recall things anyway. So it's just definitely tick-the-box stuff, and it's mandated, as you said. And so it's of little value, I think. In advance, of course, understanding what consumers expect of us in healthcare is critical, because if we don't get that right, we don't win the race for relevance. So really, you got to ask yourself, what's the motivation for measuring this at all? And sometimes McNamara was a famous, the McNamara fallacy, he was a general in the army in, around Vietnam. And he was fascinated with measuring everything to do with the war. You know, how many supplies were going out and how many people were killed and how many. And he was trying to run algorithms in the beginning of like, you know, trying to find if-then links between activities. And what the McNamara fallacy became is things that are easily measured get measured, but that doesn't make them right. And so just because you can measure something easily, and we tend to do that, we tend to measure the easy things, it doesn't mean that it makes much of a difference, actually. And unfortunately, satisfaction tracking is one of those McNamara fallacies that we measure it because it's easy but it doesn't actually tell us much. It'll tell us the really awful things that might happen to a few people. And they're nice to know, I guess. But if they're really awful, they'll probably tell you anyway, I'll be honest, without a survey. Whereas getting ahead of it and thinking about what do people expect? And that's most of my work, of course. Most of my work is with boards of directors all over the world in terms of where consumers' expectations are now. Sometimes, by the way, you don't even have to ask the consumers themselves. You can just do the work in terms of, well, where is society today? Where is technology today? How can we use technology to increase consumer expectations and go beyond and make them smile, laugh, and, you know, bring a bit of joy into the customer experience. And so the role of creativity, and creativity is an interesting one because creativity and innovation is applauded in many industries. And I guess if you were to ask people from the outside, is healthcare a creative industry? I think people would probably say no. I think any innovation that happens in, in healthcare is generated around the technology or around clinical approaches. But we need to start looking at innovation in the customer journey and say, how can we be more creative and innovative in how we interact with customers? And so you don't necessarily have to ask them. It's that whole Steve Jobs quote, you know, I don't need to ask consumers what they want, I'll tell them. And now, unfortunately, it turns out they wanted an Android phone. <laughs> but the idea of, and he was right in that sometimes, sometimes when you're really innovating and when you're getting very creative about things, you know, consumers mightn't have been able to verbalize, they certainly wouldn't have been able to verbalize, I like an iPhone. Whereas he could look at what was happening and he could say, well, this device actually would meet all those needs around mobility, around instant, around disruptive digital. And so... In the healthcare industry, we definitely need to get more creative. We need to hire people from the outside. I have this phrase called chaos ninjas. I think every industry should hire chaos ninjas. Chaos ninjas just come in and they're generally recruited from outside the industry. They have no of the old baggage in terms of the ways of working and they cause chaos. And they're welcome to cause chaos because that's the point. If we keep doing the same thing the same way, we get the same results and we're not going to grow as an industry or be able to change. So we have a whole new set of consumers. We also, by the way, have a whole new set of millennial managers, which is interesting. So now our millennials are turning 40, 45. They are becoming consultants in the industries and they do carry a different set of values. They have a different way of dealing with their own employees and their own customers, maybe versus a baby boomer clinician of 20 years ago. We'll start to see that play in, you know, and we'll start to see some of the old power hierarchies 
start to dissolve. And then you've got your consumers who are becoming younger themselves. And even what I love about the pandemic, you take your traditionalist, your baby boomer. My parents are in their late 70s, early 80s. My dad would be more digital than my mother, but even my mother now has started to do digital interactions during the pandemic. And now she's at a different place than she was. We can't assume that just because you're a certain generation, that digital journey that I'm talking about isn't relevant to you because it's kind of relevant to everybody at this stage, regardless of the geography, regardless of the demographic. Definitely the front end of what people want versus the back end of how did we do is, of course, more important. If you don't know what people want, it's marketing 101, you know, understand the needs of the consumer and deliver a product that matches. And it's fascinating too, in healthcare, I think the excuse, at least, you know, that people are muttering under their breath is that, well, most of the people who use healthcare are older and they're not as comfortable with technology, but you use your personal example and it's true in our data. Older Americans are the fastest growing group that are uh, using social media to find information, to look for a doctor, to rate a doctor, to look at reviews before the next time they go in. So it's cutting across all generations. I'm probably dating myself because I've got my white wire here. I'm the white wire generation as Ken talks about, but you've got another phrase I've got to bring up because it ties into your last answer that you shared with me, and that's freezing the dinosaur. I think so many in healthcare, just look at COVID as an example of saying, I want you to come back in for the physical visits. Let's party like it's 2019 again. And yeah. you talk about this concept of freezing the dinosaur. Can you share what that means for our listeners? Yes, I can. I actually borrowed the phrase from another speaker friend of mine called Rick Vera, lovely guy based in Belgium. But we were having this conversation one day about disruption, about change. And this is the idea that like, if you 10 years prior to the meteor strike, millions of years ago when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, if you had taken a T-Rex or a pterodactyl and cryogenically frozen the animal, and then 100 years after the meteor strike, defrosted the animal, it would still die. And it would still die because its environment in which it lived had changed. The meteor strike didn't kill the dinosaurs. It was the hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards where the environment changed so much that they couldn't survive. That's what's happening. Like the meteor strike varies. It can be economic, political, technological, it can be anything. But the environment then changes. The trading environment changes. And if you try and do what you always did in, in a new trading environment, you simply don't survive. So Lauren Bacall, a very famous Hollywood actress married to Humphrey Bogart, had this wonderful expression, standing still is the fastest way to move backwards in a rapidly changing world. So even when you stand still and do the same thing, you think, oh, grand, I'm doing the same thing. It's great. I'm not moving backwards, but you are. You're moving backwards because the world around you is moving forward so fast. You don't even notice. You drift. It's like boiling the frog, that metaphor, you know? Frog doesn't realize if it's slowly being, the heat's being turned up. And I think that's what's happening in the healthcare industry. The heat is being turned up very slowly year by year in terms of consumer expectations, in terms of whether new players coming in. There are startups right now working on stuff that we don't know about. And the heat's being turned up. And unless we're accelerating, it's like kind of like a relay race, you know? As you pass the baton, that runner starts to accelerate before they even get the baton. If they wait until the baton is passed, it's too late. You've got to have momentum to be able to win a race. And I think the healthcare industry may be lacking a bit of momentum. We're kind of waiting for the change to happen to respond to it as opposed to actually getting ready for what we know is coming, you know, a significant disruption across all in terms of the way we work. So it is a dinosaur in many ways. It's size, it's scale, it's difficult. By the way, the topic we're talking about, we're talking about as if it's easy, as if tomorrow you just flip a switch and we do it all. But, you know, healthcare is difficult. It's hugely capital intensive. Um, the capital assets are there. The change in those is slow. The culture changes are challenging and slow. And so it's not, not that we don't do it, but I acknowledge the challenges. The challenges are, are difficult. 
but there does need to be an energy in the people. And this really comes down to the people at board level and at sea level who are driving these organizations. You need to start owning some of this. You are the captain of the Titanic. You are heading to an iceberg. And so you do need to make decisions. You need to take the responsibility and say, okay, we need to become more agile. We need to be more flexible. We need to have different recruitment approaches. We need to challenge the culture. We need to invest more in digital customer journey. We need to, you, know, you need to start doing it. It needs to come from the top. Yeah, and you talk about that, not waiting for that cataclysmic change, like the dinosaurs just hanging out until the meteor strikes. You talk about, you know, how the Google Maps tile on your phone killed a whole industry. I remember walking into Best Buy and you'd have the Garmin section was this massive section, right? And they were not cheap devices and everyone had to have one in their car. And it was killed by a tile on your phone. And I think we just kind of forget how suddenly that happened. And as you point out, healthcare is more complicated than that. It's a more complex system. But let me ask you, as we're winding down, you know, you're a great futurist as well. Do you see any particular event in the future or something that is coming on the horizon where you say, wow, if healthcare can't adjust by this point, we could really be in trouble? I think it's difficult to put dates on things. One of my favorite questions, and I do get asked it all the time, you know, what's the next big disruptive thing? And I always just say, look, we call it disruption because we have no idea. <laughs> if, if we knew what it was, we'd call it predictive change. <laughs> we'd be ready for it. So disruption by its very nature comes out of the blue. Pandemic's a great example. And look how healthcare reacted to that disruptive force. Look at the speed of the vaccine. And you know, vaccines that took 10 years suddenly took a year. And that was all around collaboration and speed and instant. And now that we've done that, of course, the consumer's expectations have shifted and they're not going backwards. They now expect medicine to be able to respond to things like that within a year as opposed to 10 years. And so everything is accelerating. No, I don't know what the next big disruptive thing is, of course. And the only way you can survive it is to build agile businesses. The more agile the business, the faster it can respond to change. And so my concern for healthcare is that we don't have agile businesses. Our hierarchical structures are a problem. And so we need to look at the structures and how we actually structure stuff. I think shadow boards are really important. Having a shadow board in every organization that is made up of younger, preferably even outside of healthcare minds, that will help. That will help us look for potential opportunity and expose threats that we might not see. I think that that's really important. I think ultimately it becomes a race against consumer expectations. And traditionally, I think, you know, the voice of the consumer inside healthcare has been very, very low and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there does come a breaking point where people think, well, look, actually you're not fit for purpose anymore as an industry into that vacuum will of course come other players who will see the huge opportunity and profits be made. And suddenly within, you know, as you said, it was 18 months, by the way, between the launch of the Google Maps and the 85% collapse of the market capitalization of the GPS industry. That's a year and a half. And the entire industry was wiped out in a year and a half. You know, you have to be ready for that kind of accelerated disruption. And the only way to do that, I think, is from a talent development, talent acquisition, agile structures, and challenging norms kind of culture. And I think we don't have that in healthcare. And financial services didn't really have it either until very recently. Financial services kind of were the same. They kind of rested on their laurels and thought, ah, we'll be fine. No, no, you won't. <laughs> so yeah, if we're heading into the most disruptive decade of our lives. Um, the 20s, you know, are, are, we started by burning half of Australia down. Then we had Harry left the royal family, then the pandemic, and then, you know, just mad stuff was happening. And just when the pandemic's finished, there's a war and it just rolls on and on and on. So this is going to be, a, I mean, strap yourself in, you know, this is going to be not unlike, like we called it the roaring 20s first time round. This is going to be this very disruptive roar, you know, technology, AI, you know, virtual assistants, that's all going to grow, explode in the next five years when we all have a virtual assistant that runs all our life for us. We're going to think back to that until it'll be the Netflix example in the next 10 years. Do you remember when we had to do everything ourselves? Do you remember when you had to book your own flights and book your own health appointments? Oh, God, do you remember that? That was crazy. 
you know, we will have a AI run virtual assistant that will do everything for us. And that's a reality already. It's just, you know, in its infancy. So yeah, the world changes and changes fast. And so it's about agility and building that into your teams to cope. Yeah, it gives us a lot to think about. And I think, you know, one of the best parts of your answer was it's not just about worrying about all these things coming, it's getting your own house in order and making sure your organization, which is something we can control and we can zoom in on making sure that you're prepared for whatever that change might be that we'll label as disruption after it already happens, right? Because we've got to be ready before it does. Let me add to your question, how do you make a difference? What you do, it's really simple. You do is you hire me, right? (laughs) If you're a CEO listening to this podcast- Step one. Yeah, step one, you hire Ken Hughes. Actually, this jokes aside, this is a lot of my work, going into board directors and, and doing that one hour, two hour presentation to them that walks a tightrope between excitement and fear. Because you do need to realize that unless you change, you're going to die. But then also the amount of opportunity here is huge if we get this right. And so a lot of my work is that. A lot of my work is that inspirational work about, look, here's where we are. Here's where we're going. And you need to strap yourself in and you need to, as I said, be the captain of the ship to deliver this. I have to say, I saw you speak in person. In person, I was more excited than afraid. I will say that. And of course, you went back to Ireland, but we'd love to have you back again. Let me ask you one more question. What is something from Ireland that we could learn about? What's what's an Irish, it doesn't have to be a limerick necessarily, what's an Irish belief, phrase, something that you use that would benefit all of us in America? There's an old expression in Ireland, Nilain Tintan rather Hintan fame, and it's Gaelic for there's no fireplace like your own fireplace. You know, there's no place like home. And I think from a healthcare point, it's a very old Irish traditional phrase in that, you know, it's that kind of picture of the pint of porter by the fire, turf fire kind of thing, you know? But the idea from a customer journey point of view, there's no place like home, no fireplace like your own fireplace. I think healthcare is so impersonal as a customer journey. I think we need to make it more about them. I mean, and so this goes back to obviously, I mean, a simple example is, yeah, you know, you don't need to leave your home and I can serve you digitally via telemedicine. It's a very simple example of it. But as a concept, as a philosophy, people want their lives and their body is their home, you know? So like that is where they live. They live inside this body and we need to treat them like, like a home. You wouldn't come into someone's home and just walk around without an invitation, whereas doctors kind of treat consumers like that sometimes, like some kind of disposable entity in their busy day. You know, you wouldn't walk into someone's home without an invitation. You certainly wouldn't treat them badly. You know, so we need to treat their consumers like their home and bring a bit of human connection to it. And human connection is so important post-pandemic. And we need to double down on those efforts. There you go. Nilan Hinton rather Hinton Fein. I love that. I think that's great. We've never had that advice before. That is new advice on the podcast too. This was wonderful, Ken. I appreciate the ability virtually to share an hour of your busy day from across the pond, as they would say. And you've given us a lot to think about. How can people find you online if they want to hear more? They can cyberstalk me as much as they wish. Ken Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S is my name. You'll find KenHughes.info is my website. So on that, you'll see the blog. And do subscribe to the blog. So once a month, I release a new video and a new blog on the philosophy and psychology, sociology, and anthropology of consumption. So I think for someone in healthcare who doesn't interact with that kind of stuff a lot, it's really important. So if I look at my you know, tens of thousands of followers all over the world, they're made of loads of industries, but it will be certainly weighted towards technology, financial services, consumer goods, because these are people who actually look for trends at all times. I think and healthcare less so, you know? So, I mean, I think if you're listening to this, if you've enjoyed the podcast, definitely go on there. And just once a month, I'll remind you how important it is to put the consumer at the center and in various different ways, it might just be that inspiration. There's a YouTube channel, which you'll find off that too. And all the social media, Ken Hughes, IE, which is the short code for Ireland, is my social media tag. So you'll find me on all the usual LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and all on Twitter, and et cetera. So yeah, and I'm always delighted to have chats with people. If you've listened to this podcast and you want to reach out with a question, 
if you want to have a debate about something, I'm always happy, happy out to chat. Less so at 3 a.m. in the morning, but <laughs> generally during work times, always happy to chat. We'll try to be respectful of time zones, but we do appreciate you joining us all the way from Ireland and sharing a lot of really pertinent items that we need to be considering in U.S. healthcare. And you always say it in such an eloquent, wonderful way. So thank you so much for joining us on Patient No Longer podcast today. Right. It was a pleasure, sir.